Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, the author of The Mission Driven Life, the founder of The Mission Driven Mom. I'm here with Lindsay Wright again. We're going to dive right into Principles of Government, Part 2. Thanks so much for joining us. Really quickly, for those of you that might not have heard Part 1, Lindsay's going to give you a quick summary of kind of where we're at in this discussion that we're going to carry forward on Principles of Government. So give us a little quick summary, Lindsay, of what we covered last time. Okay. So last time, we started at the beginning with natural law. And so some of the principles that we covered were natural law comes from God. It's written on our hearts. It's connected to our happiness. C.S. Lewis said, we know the law. We know how it tells us how we ought to behave and we know how we ought to behave, but we don't always do it. And then we talked about how because of natural law, we understand that we have rights and rights come from God and they exist whether they're honored or not. We had a little bit of discussion about that. The foundational rights are life, liberty, property, and conscience, and our rights are connected to certain duties. It is our duty to protect our rights and to protect other people's rights, to not infringe or encroach upon other people's rights. Did I miss anything? Uh, That's pretty good. (laughs) That's where we're at. Okay. Awesome. Okay, so you kind of you had a few questions last time that you were like, okay, well, next time we'll get into this or that other thing. So what were some of those that we were going to get into this time? So as I was studying last time and then thinking about it more, some of my questions are, well, okay, so we know that these are our rights, life, liberty, property, and conscience. Those are the basic rights, but what does that mean? And why don't we agree on what those mean? (laughs) And What happens when, you know, I guess like the right to liberty and the right to conscience, what is the difference between those? Mm -hmm. They seem to be kind of similar. And then with that right of conscience, well, what happens when our conscience is telling us different things? So those are kind of the questions I've had, you know, swimming around in my head for the last (laughs) month. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I guess let's talk about the significance of understanding that we have four basic rights, why that's been talked about by countless leaders and authors and speakers, why that matters. And then, yeah, let's head into the right of conscience because it's, it's a right that's often not talked about today. I actually got a book out and I didn't, (laughs) I'll look through it in a minute for a really awesome quote from James Madison on that. But that is definitely a right that is not often talked about anymore and is very, very important and understanding how it works and why it's important is really matters. So since we talked last time, Lindsay, and you've kind of been thinking about these questions, mm-hmm. what, what is some, have your thoughts been about why rights matter? Did you have any answers come to your mind about that? I think that it really, it matters because it helps us clarify just, you know, principles help us clarify how, how to think about things. And so understanding these basic rights 
and, and you can kind of put, I was looking at the bill of rights, you know, and you can take mm. those and you can see that, that they're all stemming from these four basic rights. Our, yeah. our right to self-defense is connected to our right to life. Yeah. And so just as I'm, as I'm watching the news, as I'm, as I'm observing what's going on, it gives me a framework to understand what, what's going on. Like yeah, I can ask point. questions like, are, is there a right that's being violated and, yeah. and what, what is the right and yes. how is it being violated? It just is, is giving me a framework to think about yes. things. Yes. Great point. That's so critical. And I think if we, you know, you can learn about any time period, you can reflect on any civilization today and see that people really do intuitively feel like their property is theirs and that it should be protected. There have even been like, sometimes people will talk about like Native American tribes and how they were, some of them were even farmers and, and had property and some of them had like collective property. But even when it was kind of like collective property, there's not a boundary between mine and yours and that kind of stuff, there was a tribal property and there was still a defense of a tribal ownership of, of, of some kind of territory or items that belong to us collectively, even if there was a collective approach to it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting to think about too. Of course, the right to protect your life and the life of, of those you love and is obviously intuitively known and the right to not have others tell you what to do. And it's interesting to me because it's really so deeply entrenched in the way we live our lives. We don't even think about it. Like our kids grow up in our home and we just kind of tell them what to do. And even if they don't have even a lot of contact with the outside world, I mean, some kids, I guess, could be extremely sheltered. Like I know of a girl who was, who was pretty sheltered. There still comes this time, even when they've been told what to do and they've been sheltered, that they're like, hold up, you can't tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. I have the right to my own personal freedom. And we call that the teenage years, mm-hmm. you know, and parents get very upset about that and struggle with that because it really becomes in, in past generations, hundred, 150 years ago, some of that wouldn't assert itself in, in such an aggressive way because kids did leave home much earlier. So yeah. as they started to, you know, their their logical thinking skills and their abstract thinking skills kicked in and puberty hit, then they were off and off to the races and asserting, mm-hmm. you know, building their own lives in some yeah. way. But yeah, Doing that things. Yeah. That, that intuitive understanding that other people, even your parents who love you, who raised you, who are good people, who you care about, don't have the right to tell you what to do. Yeah. So those three, those three rights, I think are just, there's so much the framework for how we even live our lives every day. Maybe we don't even get to the bottom of it mm-hmm. and consider that they are just intuitively known and that people, you know, I, I watched this. There's a really famous girl right now from North Korea who escaped and has been going around talking about things. And one of the things that I've heard her say is in essence that there are no first principles, essentially, that there is, there are no absolutes for all people everywhere, that she lived in her country and was oppressed and all these things and thought it was just fine. And I keep thinking, except that you escaped. (laughs) So there's a little bit of a breakdown in that argument when, you know, you, 
you You didn't want to be there. As soon as you knew there was something else, you know, you were out of there. Yeah. Why? Because you knew you had basic human rights that weren't being honored. So that being said, let's get into this conscience thing. We do (laughs) talk about this quite in depth in the Academy. We have some readings around it, some good stuff that we cover in there. But there are some other things that we don't talk about in the academy about conscience, or maybe we don't talk about them quite this way, probably because when we were building it, we were so focused on the individual and on the mom and on the family. We didn't kind of put it in a governmental societal context. Mm -hmm. So you have a question here. What's the difference between the right of liberty and the right of conscience? What do you, what, what thoughts do you have on, on that question? Well, usually when I have a question, I go to the 1828 dictionary uh-huh. <laughs> to wrap my, you know, what is the definition of liberty? Yeah. And from what I understand, it's freedom from restraint, uh-huh. freedom from not being told what to do. Okay. Am I getting... <laughs> uh, I mean, you tell me, read the definition. I don't know what it said. <laughs> so I just pulled it up. Yeah. Natural liberty consists. And so I love that this dictionary is talking about natural liberty. Natural liberty consists in the power of acting as one thinks fit without any restraint or control except from the laws of nature. So there is a natural boundary to your liberty. Mm. Which corresponds with the duty that you can encroach on others. Right. Right. Yeah. That helps define the limits of that liberty. Yeah. Yeah. But then, so, but then uh, my question was because act, the power of acting as one thinks fit, isn't that also conscience? That's where I'm getting mm-hmm. stuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, good thought. So the fundamental way of thinking about that question that's been really helpful to me is it's pretty simple. It's physical liberty with your body, with your stuff, with your, you know, your life to go and do and be what you want to do and be. And the right of conscience is to worship as you will. Okay. So it's more of a religious. So it can be, it can be, that's part of it um, to believe what you want to believe. And to, you know, this goes back to a few centuries ago in England, people are flooding to America. Why are they flooding to America? Because we have this centuries long, now a Catholic is in charge, so all the Episcopalians and all the Protestants are being persecuted. Now a Protestant's in charge, mm-hmm. so all the Catholics are being persecuted. And literally, it was almost like three or four, I can't remember the details of which one was which, but that's really what went down for almost 100 years. If, if you know, your king or queen died and then whoever came up, then it was their turn to get to persecute the other side. <laughs> and so... Mm-hmm. You know, they, they put out a book of prayer and you were to worship from the state approved book of prayer. Mm-hmm. This goes back to the really quite revolutionary idea of separation of church and state, because you still see in early American constitutions in the way, I mean, like I was just, I was just reading about Patrick Henry and his first case, the Parsons cause, which I think I'm going to do a mission driven story on him next week. And I won't spoil the story, (laughs) but it's a really, it's a really great story. But anyway, he won this case because he made people start thinking differently about the role of government, how the government and the church work together. Because even at that time, 
you know, this is like 10, 20 years before the revolution. Mm -hmm. It is required of every township to hire a pastor and pay him from the public funds. Mm. So people have just always persecuted each other for what they believe, period. And you can give each other a hard time, but you can't hurt each other. And definitely from a governmental standpoint, your job is to protect people from each other. Like really like this is so fundamental, but we just don't talk about it enough. Government's main role is just to kind of temper, to, to, to stand between human beings whose, whose human nature is causing a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, when they want to gun each other down because, you know, they walked on their property or they, you know, that's just not appropriate or they want to persecute each other for what they believe, you know, they want to yeah. burn someone at the stake. And so, or when their rights come in conflict, right? Yes, like, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. And government steps in because government's job is to protect rights. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so Covey has this really awesome way of talking about and thinking about conscience. So I, I wanted to turn to him for a minute because I think this might be really helpful for us. Okay. So he says, well, let me tell you how he first of all defines... He says, the conscience is the internal voice, our sensitivity or awareness, our sense of right and wrong. So this is why we can say that we're all born with a conscience, because on some level, we have a sense that there's a right and there's a wrong, and that we ought to choose the right, these very Mm -hmm. fundamental first principles that are part of the law of nature. In fact, before Lindsay and I got on today, I was in the Syntopicon looking up law and the references to natural law and under natural law, the first reference is in the book of Psalms. So interesting. It says the law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. So that's one of the very first references to this idea that God's law is written on our hearts, that there's this natural law that governs us. And so the conscience is that guide. It's the thing that says there's a right and a wrong and I should obey the right. And so then he goes on to, and this is so fascinating. Now, you asked a question. What was the question that was on that paper about? You said, What if my conscience tells me something different than yours? And you said something else when we were talking about it before. What what do we do? You know, how can we say that we have a right of conscience if our consciences conflict? Mm -hmm. How do we deal with that? Now, on the one hand, it's easily explained because, you know, especially like the right of property that sometimes we have to dispute that. But this one is stickier and it is harder to clarify. And I think one of the reasons why it becomes difficult to navigate is because we're just thinking about the concept of conscience the wrong way. Okay. Right. Now we're getting somewhere. (laughs) So we're thinking about Like, I think we think about conscience, like we think about hair, everybody just has some, but it really doesn't actually work that way. Okay. Okay. We all have the spark of conscience. It's like the same thing as saying, we know everyone has a conscience. We know that's a first principle. We could also say, we know everyone has the ability to learn. That's a first principle. And if we think about it as those are both first principles. And what, what happens when we say we all have a conscience is that some, for some reason, we expect everyone's conscience to be a cookie cutter stamp of everyone else's conscience and to look exactly the same. But if we say everyone has the ability to learn, we don't expect that everyone's the education looks the same. 
-hmm. We don't expect that they have the same natural cognitive abilities. We don't expect that they have the same upbringing or the same opportunities or the same aptitudes or the same interests. Right. We just know that they can learn. And so it's helpful to think about conscience in that way. We know that we have one. Now, what are we going to do about it? Mm. And what we do about it makes all the difference in the variations we see in what people's consciences are telling them. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking too, I think a lot of times what I'm seeing is we're associating our feelings with our conscience. It feels right. Yes. I feel like this is the right thing to do, but we haven't paid the price to ascertain, to discern. Yeah. If it, if it is right. So, yeah. Yeah. So this, there's a couple other ways. That's a great way of thinking of it. Covey also, this is so helpful. It's so simple, but so helpful. He says, we basically have two consciences. We have a divine conscience and a social conscience. Oh, interesting. Isn't that fascinating? He says the divine one is the true one. It's the light God has given every man who comes into the world. The social one is also given to us, but this one comes from our human experiences. Okay. From our upbringing, the culture around us, the norms, the mores, traditions, values, and beliefs, and from the level of our obedience to the divine conscience. So this is why there's so much confusion around this idea of conscience. Are you talking about the divine spark of light and truth? Or are you talking about how you were socialized? Right. And that's, that's the argument of don't we just do things because society, because society told us to do these things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so it's so helpful to me to think about it this way, because then I can say to people, you know, I know that's how you were taught to believe. I know that's how you were socialized. I know that's what your experiences might have seemed to teach you. Mm -hmm. And so when we, when we say to obey our conscience, we mean to obey the divine light within our fundamental knowledge of right and wrong. Now, the second step, you know, kind of on that ladder. So we fundamentally understand that we have a sense of right and wrong, but we're also, also kind of enculturated. And so we develop certain beliefs, certain ways of thinking, certain things that we feel that we should do or should not do based on all these other experiences, right? Mm -hmm. What he goes on to say is that we must educate our conscience. The subtitle of this section is new light is dependent on obedience to former light. And what book are you in, Audrey? It's called the divine center. Okay. Once a person is true to the light he has received, he is then capable of receiving more light and obeying it. Until he is true to the light already given, additional light would only condemn him for he is capable neither of understanding it nor appreciating it. He would fall into the trap of being given a gift but being unable to receive it. The Lord gives to his children what they're able to receive and no more. If they are true to that, he will give them more. So, okay. Your conscience must be educated. And the only way for us to be in ultimate agreement about what's truly right and truly wrong is for us to educate the divine conscience. And the more we educate the divine conscience and come to be able to ignore or to be able to at least see clearly the social conscience, to be able to distinguish the two in ourselves and in other people, 
we're not really sure what we're acting out of. And we mm -hmm. have all this confusion around why do people act a certain way? Why do they t say their conscience is telling them to do things? Now there's mental illness. That's a whole <laughs> other topic. You know, people say they're, you know, they felt like they should do something because they're mentally ill. Most mm -hmm. people are not. Most people are pretty reasonable, but they've been really conditioned and maybe conditioned to not even understand that there's kind of some kind of divine conscience, to not have any tools to develop that, to not understand how they would go about doing that. And the only way to have a strong, really deep moral compass is to continue to be true to that conscience over time. And when we talk about conscience in the academy, we're talking about that divine spark. Okay. So tell a story often, a favorite story. You can go listen to the podcast on Shinichi Suzuki, but a favorite story on conscience, which just really rocked my world when I first read it, is when he's in his father's office in the violin um, factory and he's typing on a typewriter and the manager comes in and says, hey, don't type on that typewriter without paper in it because you'll ruin it. And he lies. He says, oh, I wasn't doing that. And then he's been so, and that's what, and, and that's what a lot of like self-deception is, self-betrayal, mm -hmm. like those concepts are really just ignoring that spark of it tells you what you should and shouldn't do. So he betrayed himself. He wasn't true to himself. And he, you know, he paces, he can't live with himself. You know, he's just feeling so guilty. He goes to the store, he picks up uh, Leo Tolstoy's diary and it says, the voice of conscience is the voice of God. And yeah. that again is that divine light of conscience versus the social conscience. And the social conscience can heavily indoctrinate. It can really be morally confusing. And we talk, about, <laughs> that's for sure. We talk about this in level two, right? When Bastiat yeah. says the very worst thing that a government could do is step on this right of conscience and confuse people morally so that they go against their own divine light, their own conscience in order to obey something that government has made a law. Mm -hmm. And you see this in action in multiple countries. Just look at the 20th century for two seconds. This happened over and over and over again. People were brought to a lower moral plane and were like, how could they do that? Well, it's because government participated in numbing their divine conscience Mm -hmm. by encouraging them to do behaviors that went contrary to their own conscience until it was dulled. So one of the things Covey's saying is you can have a super heightened conscience. Like it can be really strong, like, like a light to you and others, because you're so in tune with it and you're so obedient to it. And that's how it's strengthened. God's not going to give you more to be accountable for because he loves you. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want you to be accountable for things that you don't understand and you're not willing to live. So he'll give you the next step if you're willing to do what you already know is right. And that's why I always talk about just do the next right thing. I could ask you right now, what's one thing you know you're supposed to do? And you always know because you have a conscience and it's mm -hmm. going to tell you. And if you obey that, then and you can, you can speed up your personal growth by deciding to stay in obedience to that conscience. So when the founders, so let me see if I can find this really quickly. This is in the education of James Madison. Oh, if men were angels. We wouldn't have to have government. That's one thing. Okay. This is James Madison talking about natural rights. He says property in the former sense, a man's land or merchandise or money is called property. In the latter sense, a man has a property. This is so fascinating because he's actually just, he's actually just lumping conscience with property. 
which is a fascinating way to look at it. I think it's cleaner and easier to think about the right of conscience, but he's saying the right of conscience is like the right of property. He okay. has a property of peculiar value. Oh, let's see. In the latter sense, a man has a property in his opinions and his free communication of them. That's why we have the freedom of right of freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. He has a property of peculiar value in his religious opinions and in the profession and free use of his faculties and free choice of the ob- objects on which to employ them. In a word, as man is said to have a right to his property, he may equally be said to have a property in his rights. Where an excess of power prevails, property is no, of no sort is duly respected. No man is safe in his opinions, his person, his faculties, or his possessions. And people who understand this in today's world are really concerned about the loss of freedom of speech because that is a right of our intellectual property to be able to voice our beliefs, mm-hmm. not, to, not to harm others. But So now on these college campuses, you have all this stuff about what do they call it? Triggering. <laughs> You're supposed to, the professors, all, the, the students are lobbying that the professors have a moral obligation to let the students know if they're going to be engaging in triggering language so that students that might be triggered can leave the classroom. Mm-hmm. And reasonable thinking people keep saying to them, you don't even understand what you're saying. First of all, you're walking all over the right of free speech. And secondly, how in the world would you know? Like, <laughs> I'm sure there's some things that you could potentially say that might quote trigger a lot of people. A lot of people wouldn't want to hear that. But ultimately, it's, it's an impossible request. And we're just stepping on that right. So anyway, he says, government is instituted to protect property of every sort and conscience is the most sacred of all property. Okay. Interesting. So when we don't agree on what our consciences are telling us to do, there's a whole slew of reasons why that might be the case. It might be the case because someone is speaking from a, a divine conscience perspective and someone speaking from a social conscience perspective. It might be because we haven't paid a price to really understand the difference. It might be because we don't honor our conscience, so we haven't received greater light, so we don't even understand how to act in a more ethical way in a certain circumstance. You know, it's due to our own diligence or laziness and being obedient. I have this, I can't remember if I told this story in the Albert Schweitzer podcast, I might have, but there's another story that really stands out. I mean, I, and I say often, one of the common, and I probably should have said this in the book, but one of the common themes of these great men and women that I study, they'll often even just say outright, I honor my conscience no matter what. Like, mm-hmm. and that's what, that's what Shinichi Suzuki said is I made a commitment to myself to always do what my conscience told me to do. And so they become these really incredible servant leaders because they obey their consciences. Albert Schweitzer, maybe I can't remember the details of it now, but it was something about being at the train station and he, either somebody helped him or he saw somebody help someone else that needed help with their bags. And he just made a commitment to it. He just, his conscience kind of spoke to him, you know, you ought to do that kind of thing. And so he made a commitment to himself that every time he was at a train station, he would seek out someone that needed help and help them. And he did that the rest of his life. Wow. So their ability to listen to their conscience and to make these kind of commitments and keep them is what really nurtures that inward light and develops it and makes them people of great spiritual power. I mean, immaculate, Mm -hmm. you know, like from left to tell, like she just nurtured that light within every time she felt like there was something she should do. She was being guided. She just did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. And then she emerges from this bathroom, this incredibly powerful leader. 
mm-hmm. everybody listens to her and follows her you know they could just tell she had this moral supremacy now one last thing i'm going to tell you about the conscience from covey okay this is also fascinating he says Whatever is at the center of a person's life forms the fabric of his conscience. Okay. The conscience must be educated from divine sources in order for it to be keen and sharp, responsive and sensitive to God. This is a work that he wrote before seven habits about going into more detail about the centers and having actually, he was a Christian. So Jesus as your center. And so he he's gone into detail about the centers. And basically he's saying, when you have a faulty center, when God's not your center, then your conscience is going to be more and more intimately informed by whatever that center is. You're going to do whatever that center is calling upon you to do. So a person who becomes friend-centered will find that his social conscience will gradually subordinate his divine conscience. It's really, this context is super important and helpful because we can look at somebody who just, you know, we're striving to find truth and to be good people. And what they're saying just feels so wrong and seems so off, but we think, oh, they're a pretty decent person. And what they're saying kind of makes sense. We kind of think, well, okay, maybe they're just following their social conscience and they don't even realize it. Maybe they're just regurgitating what they've been taught and how they've been nurtured and the beliefs that have been implanted on them. And their center is really their parents or the feminist movement or this certain president or this political party. And, and so they're just going to regurgitate what that center tells them to say, because that's who's nurturing their conscience. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other, I'm just thinking, how do you tell the difference between the divine conscience and the social conscience? If, is there a question you can ask as you're, as you're trying to discern? Well, yes. Um, <laughs> Am I making any yeah, sense? You probably, you probably have some ideas too. Obviously, the better you understand natural law and first principles, first doctrines, the more you can, you know, you need to ask yourself is what my conscience is telling me to do. Is this going to be in line with mm -hmm. those? Like, mm -hmm. does it, and you can go right back to the other natural rights and you can say, am I, am I about to act in a way that's contrary to somebody else's rights? Mm-hmm. There's also in level two, there's these checkpoints. You remember those four? I can't remember what page it's on. There's these principles checkpoints. So of course, understanding natural laws and principles is just going to be huge. And the more you can check in with, am I violating a principle right now? Is my conscience telling me to do something that's contrary to natural laws or true principles? the more you're going to be able to see for yourself, I'm really off here. Like this is not the right thing to do. Yeah. So if, if, if people that were doing this were anybody out there promoting a cause were to simply say, is there any way that what I'm doing right now is going to eventually violate someone else's natural rights? That's an incredibly powerful checkpoint. I think if I can remember just from memory, some, there's, I think there's four checkpoints. One is, does it align with natural law? Does it align with what God has taught? So again, the more you understand about God's teachings the, and does it violate anybody's rights? And then simple questions like, am I going to le legitimately be a better person? Is this going to enrich my life and my family's life and the people's around me? But just having a frame of reference for understanding that maybe not all of those intuitive beliefs are right on, mm -hmm. but they should be. I think ultimately self-honesty is really, really the key. Like I think most people, most of the time when they're really honest can discern that they mm -hmm. just know they really should apologize. 
they really should, you know, read the book or go to the class or go on a run or, and it's the simple little tiny baby steps of obedience to conscience that build, build the muscle. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm noticing that with me that every few days I'm discerning a new misbelief that needs to be, you know, taken care of. And um, it, the more I'm honoring that conscience, the more, the more light I'm given, you know, so I, I do, I do see that the more I learn about natural law and principles, the more I'm, I'm seeing how they're applying in my life. And if that application is a correct application or not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, for you, right. Yeah. This is, I, and I don't know if I can find, so I'm in, I'm in abolition of man, men without chests. It's a little brutal to read, but so, so good. The basic. So tenet, yeah. The basic idea behind it. This is CS Lewis is, He's talking about what he calls the, the green book because he doesn't kind of want to call out these teach these, these <laughs> textbook yeah. writers and make them embarrassed. But he's, he's analyzing a textbook that's being used a long time ago. So this problem has just gotten worse where rather than actually being taught, he feels like children are being indoctrinated and he gives the reasons why he feels like that is damaging because they're not being taught from the framework of the Tao the Tao is the Chinese word for natural law, the fundamentals, the first principles, the overarching truths. And he talks about it, um, it's nature, the way, the road, the Tao. And so he's saying that they need to be taught this frame of reference, but, be, but, but they're really actually just being taught sentimental fluff. They don't have anything really to live for. So they're men without chess because they have no heart because they aren't passionate about what's right and true and they aren't actively pursuing that well and the things they were you know in the green book are, are watered down mm -hmm. they don't have the um the beauty mm -hmm. he talks mm -hmm. about you know this waterfall that is you know the, you're mm -hmm. you can go and experience a real waterfall but learning about it in a textbook and and the words they're choosing words are so we're not using words often yeah. we're not using the words that way they were intended to be used. Yeah. We're not using yeah. it you know, the right yeah. Yeah. way. And so we just have to be so careful about the kind of information that's coming in. Is yeah. it true? Is it mm -hmm. real? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like a, a real waterfall versus like, you know, just yeah. a picture or yeah. description. And, so. in, and in relationship to that waterfall, they're talking about, you know, value judgments and that Right. And that what they're actually really teaching is that everyone makes a different value judgment on a waterfall and no one value judgment is superior to the other. All of them are equally important and good and we can all have our own opinions and that's fine. But he says, actually, there is an ultimate source of judging those things. There are some things that are just beautiful and that are just true and that we have to educate. In fact, that Aristotle taught, and I know this because I've, I've read Aristotle, but basically... Aristotle taught that you must teach people to love what they're supposed to love and hate what they're supposed to hate. And he's not the only one that said it. He's one of the first ones that said it. But so this is, this is a kind of a taste of that. Our approvals and disapprovals are thus recognitions of an objective value or responses to an objective order. Therefore, emotional states can be in harmony with reason when we feel liking for what ought to be approved or out of harmony with reason when we perceive that liking is due 
but do, cannot feel it. No emotion is in itself a judgment. In that sense, all emotions or, set, or sentiments are illogical, but they can be reasonable or unreasonable as they conform to reason, capital R, or fail to conform. The heart never takes the place of the head, but it can and should obey it. So this idea that there are ultimate value judgments, which are absolutely right and absolutely wrong, and that our consciences can be sculpted to be in harmony or out of harmony with that ultimate set of values is important. And so wrong education can get people's reasoning skills and abilities to make proper judgments and to have a framework for a conscience that's more in right with the more in tune with the ultimate reality is also an educational problem. It's mm-hmm. also something that that can be the conscience can be educated, it can be sharpened, it can be honed, or it can be dulled, it can be killed. Right, right. because if you don't honor the conscience, it works the other way too, right? The more you honor it, the more light you receive, but the more you dishonor your conscience, the less you receive. But I was just yeah. thinking, you know, it's, it's taking the time to reflect, it's taking the time to discern and ask those questions, you know, somebody's telling me that, to value this way, and then taking the time, is that, is that true? Is it right? Mm-hmm. Is it, mm-hmm. you know, just, it's a lot of work. Taking the time to do the, to the mental mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. yeah, to, to mm-hmm. discern. Mm-hmm. And we can choose out, we can decide it sounds too hard or too big, or we don't have time. But the consequence of that is to continue to kind of muddle around Mm -hmm. and continue to feel some of that confusion and misunderstanding that we're feeling now. If we want to have a clear understanding and a better frame of reference and a a way of, of thinking about things and moving forward and making judgments and decisions that's more attuned to the ultimate reality and what's absolutely true, then there's just a price to be paid to gain that ability. Mm-hmm. So we can, we can choose that or not, but ultimately going all the way back to these natural rights, this right of conscience is something that we don't talk about much today, but it's in a lot of the founding writings and before, you know, in the, in the great books conversation that, that we do have a sense. And I talked about it in the, in the podcast on values too, that we do have a sense of right and wrong. That is a first principle. And we do know that we should choose the right. And we do have an inner guide to get us started, a catalyst, just like we have the ability to learn, we have the ability to grow, we have the ability to do a lot of things, we get to decide if we're going to do that or not. We get to decide how honed and attuned our conscience is. But in terms of a principle of government, the government should not participate in any activity that causes people to go against their conscience, assuming it's the divine conscience, not a perverted picture of that conscience. And to support them in following their consciences, as long as it doesn't breach someone else's right, Mm -hmm. you know, and that frame of reference cleans things up quite a bit, makes it quite a bit easier to understand. Yeah. The truly good people who seem to be obedient to their consciences differ greatly on application. Why? Sometimes that difference in application doesn't matter at all because that's just their personal application. When it comes to application governmentally, like how should we, how should we run this policy? That's why the goal, ultimately, the objective should be strong local government so that each and every little individual community can decide how they want things to be. And you can decide to leave your community if you want to and go to a different community because you like their applications of the fundamental principles and rights better, right? And I, I also have to say that if we knew, I also think that if we knew 
better how to get to fundamentals to start our conversations on fundamentals, we, I think we would see more of the applications more closely aligned, but we often don't come at it from that frame of reference or we're making a compromise. For example, this is a, this is a big but poignant example. When the constitution was written, there were some people there who stood in support of continuing slavery. Now, they probably had consciences and they probably obeyed their consciences in several ways, but they didn't want to extend that principle of liberty to a certain group of people. But there were a lot of people in the room, maybe arguably the majority of the people in the room who felt that that freedom should be extended to all people. But because they were at odds, and they needed to protect themselves, there had to be a compromise made. So even people of conscience might be in a position where they feel like the very first most important thing that has to happen might cause for a temporary compromise. But then of course they wrote into the constitution how they were gonna you know, move slavery out. And so that helped them to know, okay, well, we're gonna make this compromise but we're also going to help get slavery out because then we're not, we're going to stop importation and then the government's going to be able to stop slavery as well. So there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Those are just a few that come to mind. Alicia says, it seems that divine conscience is closely related to personal revelation. Maybe listening to our conscience is the first step to show father that we want personal revelation. Maybe. I think that personal revelation, communicating with God and receiving personal revelation is really where the level of application really comes, you know, you, you, and, and I will say, I was thinking about this, you know, there's really great men and women in history. And I do think they prayed regularly, but I would also say, you don't hear, you'll hear when they periodically, when they talk about that, they felt drawn to do this, they felt God telling them to do this or that. But I do think that many of them understood natural laws and principles. They had common sense and they had a conscience. And so I think they felt that on a day-to-day basis, often they just, they already knew what to do. They didn't need to ask God about all the details all the time because they had a frame of reference, which was guiding their lives. And so when they really felt like they needed God and some revelation, I'm sure they went to him and asked for guidance and all that kind of thing. But ultimately this idea that that's kind of a layer on, you can ask for specifics about your particular situation and just communicate and have a relationship with God and show him, you know, that you love him and and show gratitude and all those cool things that happen in prayer. But also these natural rights and duties, this understanding of how the basic framework of humanity works, that there are first principles, kind of what some of those are, how we can guide our lives with them and our common sense and our honing our consciences is really ultimately just the very best way to, go- to govern our lives. And then connecting with God through prayer and receiving that revelation is kind of like icing on the cake, like just the specific guide for you in your circumstances. Like, I know this is a principle, but what's the best way for me to live it? I had a woman tell me once, well, I'm really struggling right now with the decision. I said, why? She said, well, because God's given me two conflicting principles, <laughs> two conflicting commandments, and I just can't live them both. And I was like, really, what are those conflicting commandments? And he, she said, well, he told me that I should stay out of debt, but he also told me that I should stay home and parent my kids full time. And I was like, not seeing how those things That's are in conflict <laughs> and not exactly sure, you know, but 
yes, be a good mom. That is a principle. Yes, stay out of debt. That is a principle. I'm sure there's a million ways you can honor both of those principles. And what really was happening was that she wanted to go out and work. And that was kind of her way of making a, a moral compromise with herself to decide to do that, which is fine. You know, that was, that was her choice, but it, it's always stuck with me because she was like, yeah, I've got these two conflicting principles. Like, Pretty sure. And, you know, ultimately that's all Covey's talking about with win-win. Let's create win-win because everybody, because, because we can honor those principles. But anyway, yep. any last words, Lindsay, any other thoughts you've had while I've been talking here for the last few minutes? I just, this has been fascinating and fabulous. And my, I'm thinking that the one, the great thing that I love about principles, that last example that you had, you know, he, if principles seem to conflict, it's because we don't understand the principle or we're in self-deception. We're we're denying some aspect of the truth. Mm -hmm. But what I really love is that you were able to have a conversation with her. What I'm liking about this conversation is that it's, it's a way to help us build those bridges to have these conversations. So not only does it give us this framework of understanding how, how government and society should work, but it's giving us tools to start having those conversations that need to be had. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure. And again, just being able to see that third way, I do think sometimes Mm -hmm. we do settle for for something we didn't need to settle for, or we do make compromises we didn't necessarily need to make because we just need to be more vigilant for that win-win. We need to be trusting that God can show us the third alternative that will help us live those principles and honor everybody's rights. But just as a fundamental way of getting along in our societies and even in our families, it's so important to honor these. And just one last thought, I was thinking of how you were saying that some women were wanting us to apply some of these ideas to family, which, which we'll do in a, in a future discussion. But I was thinking about this principle of the right of conscience applies, like even in our families, like letting teaching the truth that we know living true to our own consciences and giving other people, even within our own families, the space to believe what they're going to believe and to obey their own consciences in the way that they feel like is right and to respect them as they make efforts. And anyway, yeah. So interesting. All right, Lindsay, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me in this discussion. It was fascinating. We'll continue on this principles of government train and continue (laughs) to try to answer more questions that come in about different aspects of it, get to some basics. I think next time on just the proper role of government, what this all means for a framework for how government is meant to work. And then we can move on to what that would mean in our family governments and so forth. So great. All right. Thank you so much. We will see you next time.